Good morning. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. Glad to have you join us today. How much do you know about gender-affirming care? Minnesota is poised to pass a law that will protect access to gender-affirming care for transgender people. Last week, the state legislature passed a bill that provides legal protection for people who come to Minnesota for gender-affirming care. Governor Tim Walz is expected to sign that bill into law later this week. Minnesota joins Colorado. Illinois, Maryland, and New Mexico, which passed similar bills this year. Meanwhile, Minnesota's neighbors, Iowa, North Dakota, and South Dakota, have banned gender-affirming care for minors, claiming that this kind of care causes irreparable harm. This hour, I'm going to talk to a Minnesota doctor who provides gender-affirming care. Also in the studio with me is State Representative Lee Finke, who is one of the authors of the recently passed bill. You're also going to hear from some young transgender Minnesotans about what this bill means to them. And I want to hear from you, too. Have you sought out or received gender-affirming care? Or do you have a young person in your life who has? What does the passage of this bill mean to you? You can call us at 651-227-6000. Again, 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2828. To get us started, I first want to talk to NPR News politics reporter Dana Ferguson. Dana joins us from our bureau at the state capitol. Good morning, Dana. Good morning, Angela. How are you? I'm fine. Just trying to to keep up with all the new new developments at the Capitol. It's busy there right now. That it is. Yeah. (laughs) So my understanding, Dana, is that this bill is really about supporting medical, social, behavioral and psychological care that affirms a person's gender identity. Tell us more about what is in the bill. Yeah, the bill would provide legal defense for people who come to Minnesota for gender-affirming care and for the people who provide it. So to be a little more specific, it would prevent Minnesota courts or officials from complying with extraditions, arrests, or subpoenas (laughs) related Mm -hmm. to gender-affirming care that a person receives in Minnesota. Now, in March, Governor Walz signed an executive order protecting access to gender-affirming care. So how is this bill different? Yeah. The executive order that the governor signed directs state agencies not to comply with investigations or extraditions from other states. And it says that the governor has the discretion to decide if he wants to comply with arrest, extraditions, or subpoenas dealing with gender-affirming care. But this bill goes farther because it extends that guidance to Minnesota courts, law enforcement officers, and governors, and says that they cannot arrest a person or extradite or subpoena them in Minnesota if the crime they face elsewhere arose from accessing gender-affirming health care here. And Minnesota, as I mentioned, is is joining four other states that have have passed uh, similar bills this year to protect access to gender-affirming care. And these bills are in response to other states that have passed legislation that limits or outright bans gender-affirming care for young people. So, Dana, tell us more about what what is going on in, in those other states, particularly our neighboring states. Right. Twelve states, including Iowa, North Dakota, and South Dakota, have banned gender-affirming care for minors, and dozens of states have filed and considered bills that would limit gender-affirming care for transgender youth, and in some states for adults as well. 
Republican legislators in those states have raised concerns about gender-affirming care being dangerous, and they worry that some treatments can't be reversed later. It's worth noting that major medical groups say that denying trans youth gender-affirming care can cause lasting physical and mental health problems. We've heard from gender-affirming care providers here in Minnesota that they've been getting more calls and requests for care from out-of-state patients, and they're trying to provide that care for traveling patients as well as keep up with demand for Minnesota patients. And as you mentioned, there are four states led by Democrats that have also adopted similar policies to Minnesota's that protect access to gender care. Uh, We've seen news coverage of protests and rallies there at the state capitol, supporters and opponents of Minnesota's bill gathering there at the capitol. And so, first, Dana, tell me, what what are supporters saying, people who come out and who want to be heard? Supporters say that in this moment, it's important to make sure that patients can come here to get care and not face legal repercussions in other states. They also said that providers should be able to practice care that is legal here without having to risk charges elsewhere. They also noted that they think it's important to pass this legislation to let trans people and their families know that they are welcome in Minnesota and they can continue to get their care here. And what are opponents saying as they gather for for protests and rallies? Yeah, opponents said they were concerned that passing this bill would make Minnesota a sort of hub for gender-affirming care. And they said Minnesota should avoid passing policies that could encourage people to violate laws in their states. Mm -hmm. Both supporters and opponents have been very present at the Capitol as this proposal is moved through. Um, And we expect that there are going to be a lot of supporters with the governor uh, when he signs it later this week. Timing. I want to ask about that. So the bill passed in the Senate last Friday. And so what comes next? When? Yeah, the governor, Governor Tim Walz, has said he supports the bill and he plans to sign it into law this week. We expect that will be on Thursday um, and it will take effect pretty soon after he signs it. And then other any other uh, LGBTQ protections in the works there at the state capitol, other uh, issues that are, are, are somewhat related? The Legislative Queer Caucus, which spearheaded the Trans Refuge Bill, is also pushing to rewrite the state's human rights laws to include LGBTQ communities and to provide them with more specific protections against discrimination and harassment. And they've also pushed for a bill banning so-called conversion therapy for minors. That therapy attempts to change a a person's sexual orientation or gender identity, and it's been discredited by major medical groups. Uh, The Senate also passed that bill on Friday, and it's expected to be signed into law soon. Governor Walls has said he plans to sign that bill as well. All right. uh, Dana Ferguson getting us up to speed on what's happening there at the state capitol. Dana Ferguson is one of our politics reporter there, as well as covering elections for NPR News. Dana, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Now, let's bring in our other guests. Here in the studio with me, I have two guests. Representative, State Representative Lee Finke is here, a DFL lawmaker in the Minnesota House of Representatives representing St. Paul. She's also one of the authors of the Trans Refuge Bill in the House of Representatives. Good morning to you, Representative Finke. Nice to meet you. 
Nice to meet you. It's a true honor to be here this morning. Also, we have with us Dr. Angela Cade Gepford, Medical Director of the Gender Health Program at Children's Minnesota. They are also the system's Chief Education Officer. Good morning to you, Dr. Gepford. Welcome back to the program. Great. Thanks for having me, Angela. Right. We like education here on the show. We sure Just do. So you know, <laughs> we like to, to uh, interact with people and to listen to each other. So to our listeners, I want to hear from you, too. We are taking your phone calls. Have you sought out or received gender affirming care? Or do you have a young person in your life who has? What does the passage of this bill mean to you? You can call us at 651-227-6000. Again, 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2828. Representative Finke, why is this bill uh, important right now? Uh, this bill is important because there is a coordinated, national, organized attack against the rights of trans people, especially trans young people, happening across the country. Uh, we are a small community, and we need to be protecting ourselves everywhere that we can. And as you uh, look at the conversations that have taken place so far in the state legislature, what's your feeling? Is there support for this? I have felt very supported at the legislature, both among my DFL colleagues as well as the general public. Uh, the, the understanding that we should not be attacking health care for children seems to be receiving broad support. Uh, I, I'm, and I feel that support very, very strongly. What about the opposition? What are your thoughts of, of what we've seen here and in other states? I think that the opposition is um, a political movement. Uh, the, the leaders of this political movement have made it very clear that it is not about trans people. It is about finding um, finding a community to attack uh, and successfully using that as a weapon in our country. Uh, recently, Terry Schilling, who is one of the leaders of this movement, was quoted in the New York Times as saying, we just threw everything at the wall and trans people stuck. Um, it's really... It's really difficult to know that we are being attacked just for politics, but that is what's happening, and it is ruthless, and uh, we need to be prepared to fight back. Dr. Gepford, as someone who provides a gender-affirming care in Minnesota, working directly with patients and families, what are your thoughts on this bill? It's absolutely, you know, as Representative Finke said, it's absolutely something that we need right now. Um, as pediatricians and as other healthcare clinicians who care for kids, our job every day is to make sure that kids can thrive. That's what we do. We go to work every day to help kids be healthy and strong and to thrive. And we need to know that we can provide the care that all kids need, including transgender and gender diverse kids, without fear of prosecution. Families need to know that they can bring their child to the doctor to ask these kinds of questions without fear that something negative is going to happen to them or to their child or to their family. The children who you talk with, are they aware that there is a battle taking place uh, in state uh, legislatures around the country over this? Absolutely. They're absolutely aware and they're afraid. I There's not a day that I have been in gender clinic um, probably in the last two years that uh, at least one family has not asked me about Will I be able to receive care ongoing in Minnesota? Is my family going to have to leave the country? I just saw a family yesterday that is maintaining Canadian residency for one of the parents in case they need to leave the United States so that their child can continue to access care. And I, I think I said in the intro that there uh, are many people who have voiced a concern that, that gender-affirming care does irreparable harm. Mm -hmm. When you hear that, what do you say to that? I, I think that they don't understand. I think that they don't understand what gender-affirming care is. And I think that they also don't understand um, what harm is done to kids when they can't be seen for who they are and when they can't receive the love and care and support that they need. And the harm is what? 
Well, the harm is is usually poor mental health outcomes, um, and in some cases, death, which I don't want to be the person who's threatening and saying, if we don't provide gender-affirming care, all the trans kids are going to kill themselves. But the reality is that study after study and all of our outcomes show that when kids can access gender-affirming care, they do better. They have less psychological distress, they do have less suicidal thoughts, and they have less suicide attempts. I want to take some time to hear from some teenagers and young adults here in Minnesota uh, to hear their thoughts on this bill. Our, our show's senior producer, Danelle Cloutier, spoke with some young adults this past Friday before the bill passed. And so you're about to hear from 20-year-old Abby Nyson and 19-year-old Maya Kulangis. I think that would just be amazing to know um, that, like, my home state is at least trying to help protect, um, like, myself and then other, like, trans and queer individuals. It's sad, like, and it hurts to know that, you know, like, other families do have to, like, come um, to Minnesota, like, escape their homes um, to come for that care when it's something that's just simply life-saving. It's not anything extra. It's just, it's just basic care, but somehow it's gotten so controversial, quote unquote, kind of a, um, like a bittersweet moment, the fact that it has to be in question. um, But the fact that it is being pushed so strongly by um, like the queer community um, in Minnesota, hopefully, it works out to be um, like a safe place and to be the refuge state that it's supposed to be. I am also proud that my state, Minnesota, is able to give kids who are not able to give the life-saving care that they need to live their best life. And it's honestly crazy that states are able to prevent this care for children who we know have struggled. These kids need this care because without this care, there are so many kids that will be left behind, struggling for a lot of their life, struggling to understand who they are, to if they can go to another state, they are able to discover who they, they are able to get the care that they need. They don't need to hide because I am who I am and no one can stop me. That's what every kid deserves is to just be able to be who they need to be, who they want to be, who they are. We just heard from a 19-year-old and a 20-year-old, uh, Representative Finke. How do their words resonate with you, your, the reactions uh, that you are hearing on this bill? I mean, it resonates very powerfully, right? I mean, there is an idea that we cannot be trans, and that idea is false, and it is dangerous. And it, what it means to be a person who is able to live fully and wholly as yourself versus not is all you need to know about whether or not gender-affirming care is necessary health care. When you see the difference, you know the truth. Um, and, and that's what these young people are saying. And that's what young people across the country are saying. We just want an opportunity to be who we are. And if you block us from doing that, of course, that's going to have negative outcomes. Mm. Dr. Gepper, I, I, you can hear the passion in their voices mm-hmm. and uh, a desire to be understood and heard. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what that really speaks to is is a couple of things. One, there's a lot of complicated emotions that go through a young person's gender journey and gender experience. And that's a huge part of what gender affirming care is, is being there to help explore those emotions and help young people as they're exploring their expression and asking questions and, and figuring things out. And so it's really important that young people have support as they go through that. And then just to echo what Representative Finke said, 
you know, we just want young people to live their lives. I don't want the focus of a young person's life to be whether or not they can access health care. I have three kids who happen to be cisgender, and we never talk about whether they're going to be able to access health care or not. We talk about do they want to go out for baseball and, you know, what's happening mm-hmm. in their math test this week. And I want trans kids to have those same primary focuses for their young experiences as well. We're going to talk about some of the misconceptions about gender affirming care. But first, I, I want to bring our listeners into the conversation. Uh, have you sought out or received gender affirming care? Or do you have a young person in your life who has? We want to hear from you. What does the passage of this bill mean to you? Call us at 651 651- Two two seven six thousand or eight hundred two four two twenty eight twenty eight. Let's take a phone call from Wait Park. Amber is on the phone. Good morning, Amber. Good morning. Uh, thank you for having me. Mm-hmm. What did you want to tell us? Um, so I am a trans woman. I use her pronouns. I have two trans children. We are Minnesota residents, um, but I can't tell you how much this means for the community. And just anecdotally, how many people have made plans to move to Minnesota, especially as the surrounding states uh, clamp down on rights. I have a a friend who's an adult, but she just went to Missouri to get a consult for gender affirming care. And then a week later, there's a special action that prevents her from doing that. Now she has to start the whole process over. And just how important this moment in time is for this legislation to pass and to help protect us at a time when just, you know, we're, we're up against it and we're feeling it. And I can't thank the Queer Caucus and Representative Finke enough, Dr. Gutford, for all the work that they do for the trans community and that this is just the beginning and there's going to be a lot of uh, organizing and support and, um, and love that we're going to need over the, the next coming months and years. And Amber, in uh, your conversations with your children, I'm not sure how old they are, but uh, are they aware that this is a topic of debate? Yes, they are. Um, I have a 15-year-old and 12-year-old, and I mean, they're online. You know, they are not immune to hearing about it. It's everywhere. Um, I've noticed the effect, you know, on their mental health as well as my own. Just when you when you hear about this, when you hear about these these laws passing, um, when you hear about just the amount of vitriol, it, it takes a toll, mm-hmm. you know, and the fact that there's positive legislation coming out, especially in our home state, has just been huge. Um, and it's given them a lot of hope. Um, and quite frankly, it's given me a lot of hope for the future. Thank you, Amber, for your time. Uh, Amber used the words uh, vitriol. Uh, I, I, I try to keep up with what's going on. I just uh, heard a saw a news report uh, last night, I believe, about uh, what's happening in Montana uh, with, uh, with with uh, just arguments, fights, uh, protests. Um, and so I'm curious, what are your thoughts about just the outrage that is been expressed and that, that people are showing uh, across the, the nation in this? Um, because I think, Dr. Gepper, you've said gender-affirming care is not new. No, it's not new at all. It's something that we've been providing for years. And in fact, I was on your show when we launched our clinic back in 2019. It was on the front page of the Star Tribune and barely heard anything from anyone about it. So the care itself is not controversial. Within the medical community, the care is not controversial. As was mentioned at the top of the hour by Dana, you know, it's supported by every major medical association. What There's been a manufactured controversy, as Representative Finke alluded to, um, for political purposes that has deliberately spread 
uh, misinformation and fear. And when you spread those things, you tend to end up with a lot of really strong emotion, mm-hmm. which is what we're seeing. And Representative Finke, as you follow news coverage, I mean, what goes through your mind when you hear about, you know, um, just the 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 the. I don't know, just the intense emotion, uh, the opposition and and what fellow lawmakers around the country are dealing with, including what you're going through. Yeah, the the vitriol is is very difficult. uh, And it's something that we deal with. There's only about 12 trans non-binary lawmakers in the in the country. And Mm -hmm. um, I've had conversations with most of them. And there is a real um, built upon uh, intentional lies that are being told about what gender-affirming care for young people means. Um, we have become targets that are, and, and as have providers like Dr. Gepford, that are well beyond any reasonable understanding of what it means to be providing this care. Um, and it, you know, we can see, for example, in myself, where it's like, we shouldn't do this, but all of a sudden, you know, words coming from across the aisle like evil and um you know, outside of nature and demonic and all kinds of things, right? And that that kind of rhetoric spreads through the public, and that that's going to have consequences. And we're seeing that in Montana with Representative Zoe Zephyr, who was um, under attack by the conservative party in her state, who has silenced her ability to speak on the floor, is now looking at um, further actions. Representative Maury Turner in Oklahoma, they have been under censor for months, Um Meaning they cannot speak about this topic. Right. They can't speak. They've been removed from committee. They're they're basically having their ability to represent their constituents um, revoked by the power, the party in power because of their advocacy for trans kids. I want to hear um, some more of our, uh, the young Minnesotans uh, that our senior producer spoke with um, about how they have used gender affirming care. Again, our, our senior producer, Danelle Cloutier, spoke with three teenagers and young adults at Queer Space. And that is a, a Minneapolis based mentorship organization for queer youth. Let's listen. My name's Abby Nyson. I go by they, she pronouns, and I I identify as gender fluid. How old are you, Abby? I'm 20 years old. I don't particularly identify as necessarily transgender, but I do use gender-affirming care to help um, with my presentation and just help my outer self and, like, um, how I perceive myself be, like, what everybody else, like, perceives me as. For people who might not be familiar with gender-affirming care, what is that? Gender affirming care can look a lot like a lot of different things. Um, but like for me, it looks like even just like using a binder, which is basically um, like a really tight sports bra for anyone who doesn't know. Um, or like you can use wrapping as a different type of binding, but they can be very uncomfortable for people who don't know. Um, as individuals who wear bras know, they can get very tight or rub and um, pinch and like feel very uncomfortable. So having access to like proper fitting binders is really important. Um, but so I utilize binders different times as well as like going um, in therapy, just talking about identity and being able to work on embracing like your own expressions. So like as well as like cutting my hair short and being able to like present more masculine just like in a physical way. Boujum, my name is Maya Kalangis and I am 19 years old. I go by they, she pronouns, and I identify as two-spirit. I am an Indigenous American from the White Earth tribe. What would you like to share about your own story? I never really got into uh, medical care or just transitioning in a social sense until around the age of seventeen, uh, 16 or 17. Because in my where I lived, which was 
East St. Paul, a lot of that was stigmatized in a way. It was hard to express that side of me within a community that didn't really have the access to information. And it took me a while to even start socially transitioning. But but I started after socially transitioning. A year later, I started doing medical transitioning, which started with estrogen and more of other other medical procedures. I haven't really, I haven't gotten to the point where I've done done any surgeries, but I am planning to in the future. I am Woods O'Neill. My pronouns are they, he. I am 16, and I am an artist from St. Louis Park. What do you want to share about your story as it relates to your identity and where you're at now? Um, I came out first as non-binary, later as genderqueer at the start of the COVID lockdowns here in Minnesota. And uh, what a time to do that. Uh, for the start of my journey, gender affirming care meant putting they, them next to my name in Zoom. Um, and then everything went back to quote unquote normal. So I was binding occasionally. I had to stop that because of asthma and other complications, including COVID. And I still do it sometimes, but that's a special occasions thing. And uh, I'm not pursuing medical, like chemical transition, um, except for a hormone treatment for a, a medical condition that did end up validating my gender a bit, which was nice. And I'm considering surgery in the future, but most of my transition has been social and most of that hasn't gone great. Like, no. <laughs> uh, like... The people I care about care, and that's nice, but, like, every time somebody misgenders you in public or people you've seen again and again do it, it hurts more somehow, especially once you've explained it to them. Like, I was at the doctor earlier this week, and he was doing it to me, um, despite me explaining everything to him before twice, and it, my chart specifically being updated before this visit. Like, it, it kind of feels like a race you can't win. <laughs> the voices of young people, teenagers, talking about gender-affirming care, what you just heard there. Dr. Gepford, a lot to cover there. And uh, just acknowledging, I think many people really don't understand what that term means, what sure. specifically we're talking about uh, if a person goes to the doctor. Uh, so can we take some moment here to talk about the details and describe in some detail what we mean when we say gender-affirming care? Uh, I, I want to ask about binding because uh, those sure. young folks talked about binding. What is that? Yeah, well, let's let's um, just kind of start with that baseline. Gender-affirming care is developmentally appropriate care um, for young people that includes medical, mental health, and social services. So really supporting a family and a child across the spectrum. And you heard the people on the uh, interviews talking a lot about social transition. So that is no medical treatment or therapy, but really helping them exist in their lives in the ways that they feel seen. Um, binding, as it was referenced, is a practice um, where you use something to make your chest appear flatter. And it's really actually quite important that young people have access to um, pediatric trained providers who understand what binding is and how to support young people, because there are very safe ways to flatten one's chest or bind one's chest. There are a lot of different companies that specifically make binders. There's ways we can help youth access those in financially sustainable ways. And there are very unhealthy ways to try to flatten your chest that can cause damage long-term. And we want to make sure that young people aren't doing those ways to flatten their chest, but they're using ways that are 
medically um, more safe and, you know, sustainable for them and won't cause harm long term. So um, that's an important conversation to be able to have with a doctor who understands that. And so what do you think is going on in the homes of, of, of children, young people, teenagers, young adults, when they're expressing, um, you know, to their parents, uh, I need to go to the doctor, I need help with this. Um, mm-hmm. And the hesitation or concern they may have about what's going to happen when I get there. Will this person understand? Will they help me or not? Yeah, I think the young people are are quite enthusiastic about coming to the doctor. They know that when they get there, they're likely when they get to a gender affirming healthcare environment, I should say, um, they they know that they're going to be able to ask some questions and get some answers. What I am finding is that parents are quite hesitant um, because of all the misinformation. Mm-hmm. So what I can visibly watch a parent's shoulders just just drop with relaxation as soon as I start talking to them about what we're going to talk about today and. This is a chance for us, for me to get to know you and for us to talk about options. And I go through everything and they just relax because they finally found a place that the parents can also ask their questions, that mm-hmm. everyone can get accurate information and that we can make decisions together. And it's not the scary situation that's been portrayed, you know, falsely in the media. And so um, it's really there's not a parent who has left my office who hasn't said Thank you. And often that was life changing. And when I think about um, fear and misconceptions, I I think about puberty. And so I think a lot of people have questions about what is safe to do uh, for a child going through puberty, because you already are dealing with a lot of hormonal changes. Mm -hmm. What what's safe? What's what is has, has proven to be effective and good? So, yeah, for some kids who are um, going through puberty, we do have the option to reversibly pause their puberty using a puberty suppressing medication. I think it's really important here to point out that these types of medications, they're colloquially referred to as puberty blockers, have been used for close to 50 years, um, 40 years plus, in cisgender kids, so in kids who are not transgender, who go through puberty early. We call it precocious puberty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they've been used in kids. They've been studied in kids. We know very well how they work, their reversibility, Um, What, if any, side effects are associated with them? And over the last 10 to 20 years, we've also been using these same medications to pause puberty um, in a reversible way for transgender kids. And so it's the same it's the same medication. Um, It's very safe. We we know it very well. Um, And for some kids, it may not mean pausing all of their puberty. For some, it may mean that getting a period is is particularly um, distressing for them with regard to their gender identity. So we may be able to just suppress their period only um, using a hormonal method that is typically a form of birth control. So again, a very safe, well-studied mm-hmm. uh, medication. And also I think about hair growth during puberty. And mm-hmm. so is that something that can be ad- addressed too, like maybe facial hair? So that's the role of the puberty suppressing medications mm-hmm. would be to suppress the growth of the facial hair, which once it happens is permanent. I mean, I think when we talk about these permanent irreversible changes, we, we sort of leave out of the conversation that puberty itself is permanent and irreversible. So if someone has identified as a girl from the time they're six years old and is known to everyone as a girl, and now when they're 13, 14 years old, they're being forced to, in states that ban this care, get a deep voice and grow facial hair and sort of grow into a body that is not them, um, that is is irreversible harm. Mm. Representative Finke, anything to add about uh, hearing from those young uh, young folks describe their trips to the doctor and what they care about and, and just learning more about what, what doctors are able to do? Yeah, I, I, I'm 
thinking a lot about the final the final person that we heard from who talked about going to the doctor and having their doctor not see them for who they are and not use their pronouns and not understand this is a person uh, with a queer identity that matters to them. Um, and that's that's devastating, right? I mean, that is the kind of treatment that Dr. Gepard and others are trying to um, make sure it doesn't happen to these young people. Uh, the idea that you know, I grew up in the 80s and 90s when, when um, trans visibility just didn't exist in the Minneapolis suburbs. Um, and now we have young people who do know who they are and who have language and, and understanding of what that means. And, and to not be able to find affirmation and love from the people in their lives is just, it breaks my heart. And it's the kind of thing that we are trying to um, create in Minnesota, that this is a place where you don't have to experience that. Um, and it's, you know... People are who we are, who we say we are, and and people should respect and uh, not just respect, but appreciate that. Celebrate, celebrate that, I would add. Exactly. Uh, I want to get to more of our phone calls. Uh, a lot of folks are calling in, but I also want to take a moment to listen to uh, more of these these young folks that our senior producer interviewed a couple of days ago. Uh, I want to talk about the misconceptions that people have about what gender-affirming care is. But let's listen right now to 20-year-old Abby Nyson. Uh, I mean, I know I've heard people say um, that, you know, it's going to, like, hurt their bodies as they grow up or, like, affect their development, stuff like that. Um but suicide is just going to stop all that. Um, and if they don't get that care, they're not going to even grow. So um, looking at it in that perspective, if it's like we really care about these kids and, you know, we want them to develop well, well, they're not going to develop if they can't get that care. Because um, even simply um, a statistic actually from the Trevor Project, if a trans or just queer youth is able to be like respected and referred to as like their proper name, proper pronouns, um, just recognized for their identity. It reduces suicide ideation by 40% um, just simply by being recognized for who they are. That's 20-year-old Abby Nyson. As we talk about misconceptions about gender-affirming care, Dr. Geppert, uh, what what tops the list? What are some of the things that you hear from people who, who ask questions who just really yeah. want to understand better? I think the biggest misconception is around surgery. So um, surgical care is just not a part of gender-affirming care for kids. Um, and really, medical treatments are not a part of gender-affirming care for kids until they hit puberty. So there's a lot of, um, when I was listening in the in the legislative hearings, a lot of reading of very intense surgical procedures um, that are just not offered for children. So if uh, surgical procedures are accessed, they're accessed by older young adults, so late into their teenage years, and at a very low rate. So less than 1% of uh, trans adolescents will access a form of gender-affirming surgery, and it's typically a chest or top surgery. And so I think that's probably the biggest misconception. There is no surgery being done on children, and um, we're not using medications that would have long-term consequences until a young adult is old enough to participate in that decision with us, um, which is into their adolescence. And Representative Finke, an opportunity to clear up misconceptions. As you talk to your constituents, your fellow lawmakers, what do you hear that is troubling that you're like, well, that's actually not true. It's not what we're talking about here. Yeah, I mean, I would echo what uh, Dr. Geppard said. I mean, what the accusations and the, and the things that are said to me are about surgeries for children that are just not real. Uh, they're not taking place. Um, what we are talking about is what uh, the the 
person that we just heard from is talking about, which is understanding and respecting and accepting a person for who they are, uh, loving people and using language that affirms them and um, ensuring that they become a trans adult when they can make decisions. Uh, you know, even majority, I believe, of trans adults don't access gender affirming surgeries. Uh, it's what it means for us to live our lives is simply so far removed from the uh, oppositional framework of what it means to be trans that um, we are we are constantly having to correct people. We are constantly having to receive, um, you know, accusations based in lies about what it is for us to live our lives. Let's take more phone calls from our listeners. In Afton, Marin is on the phone. Good morning, Marin. Thank you for waiting. And, and what did you want to ask or share? Hi, good morning. First of all, I just want to say thank you for holding space for this important conversation. And a massive thank you to Representative Finke and Dr. Gepford. Dr. Gepford is actually our daughter's uh, pediatrician. And I'd w- I wanted to share that our daughter knew her gender when she was three years old. She was assigned male at birth. She's an identical twin. Her brother is cisgender. And she shared very clearly, me a girl, when she was three. And she has not wavered once since. So I, I think um, as a parent, I know as a parent, it is a scary time right now. Um, she is now six and a half years old. And um, the misinformation that is widespread is terrifying. Um, she is just like any other kid in every single way, except for that she was assigned the wrong gender at birth. And I am so grateful to live in Minnesota. I'm heartbroken for parents who are in other states who are terrified for their kids' well-being. Um, it's enough just to have so much hate exist everywhere, um, but let alone not be able to provide your children with the care that they need when they get to that age. So I think I just wanted to voice that this is something that can happen really, really young. Lots of kids know their gender really young, including cisgender kids. Mm-hmm. And um, to just encourage all of those parents out there who have cisgender kids to read them age-appropriate books. There's tons of them. So that when their friends share at some point that they are transgender, that that child has the language to be supportive uh, and kind to their friend. Maren, thank you for calling in with your story. I, I appreciate it. Um, three years old, Dr. Gepford. And so let's talk about at, at what age uh, would or could a child start articulating what they're they're feeling and see, seeing? I think Maren said uh, uh, that her child said, me, me a girl. Mm-hmm. <laughs> very, very clear. Yeah. You know, for some kids, it is as, as early as they can talk and express themselves. Um, so what we know about child development is that by the time kids are two, they really do understand differences between genders. They're kind of seeing how people are acting in the world. And they first understand those differences, and then they turn them inward and figure out where they fit in that. And that does happen between three and four years old for kids. Um, the The key thing is kids do need to have the language, and they also need to have kind of the safety and the agency to do that. So while some kids will express their identities that young if they are transgender, for many kids it takes some time for them to find the words and language and feel safe enough to share that uh, with their families or their loved ones. Um, the other thing I just want to point out, you know, the the mom who called in used the words assigned sex at birth. And, you know, there are so many things that make up who we are. And our brain is a big, big part of that. But when babies are born, we can't look into their brains. All we have to look at is the outside of their bodies and, you know, their genitals and sometimes their chromosomes. And so we make a guess. And it's okay that we make a guess, but we need to be open that as kids' brains turn on and they learn who they are, 
that we can listen to them because a lot of the time it's the same as we guessed when they were born, but sometimes it's not. And kids do know themselves and anyone out there who's listening who is not transgender, if I asked you to remember and think back to the first time that you knew that you were a boy or a girl, I doubt you'd remember because it was so young. It was when you were three or four years old. So our sense of who we are is quite innate. And then we spend our lives kind of figuring out how to describe that with language and who we're safe to share that with. Anything you want to add, uh, Representative Thinky? Uh, no, that was beautifully said. <laughs> well, I do I have a personal question for you. Uh, you are the, the first transgender lawmaker in Minnesota. Um, what made you want to run for office? Yeah, I mean, I re- I wanted to run because of what was happening around the country. I, I, I thought it would become very important for us to have a trans person in the room, um, especially as these conversations started to uh, find their way into the Minnesota House of Representatives in the last couple of years. We heard some really... Um, degrading, dehumanizing conversation about trans people. And um, it just became abundantly clear that every everywhere that we can, um, we will need to start to find our way into political conversation, uh, as well as decision making spaces. And, you know, I, I was lucky to be in a position where, where I was in a district that had a retirement, so I could run. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, it was a direct response to what we are hearing and what we continue to hear around the country. And at what age did you identify as being transgender? What At what age did you know? Yeah, that's a, I mean, it's a complicated question for myself, right? So when, when I was 15, I knew I was different, um, building up to about 15 years old. Um, but but I was not in a position where I felt like I, I was safe to say, oh, I think I might be gay. Um, that to was anyone. The, to, to, to anyone, exactly. Um so I, I made some other decisions, and and I ended up coming out uh, as trans uh, in 2017. Mm. Let's take another phone call from uh, a listener in Moorhead. Uh, Moorhead is listening this morning. Good morning, Loretta. Loretta's on the phone. What do you want to share or ask? Hi. Hi. My, I live in Moorhead, Minnesota, on the border of uh, Minnesota and North Dakota. And my son transitioned 10 years ago. He got to do it privately with a care of health providers, you know, a whole team. I got to learn things from them. We were treated well. And because of his life, I've I've followed the situation and know many people in North Dakota who've been affected by their recent ban of trans health care. And it's been very difficult. They've worked really, really hard. And the governor, you know, uh, did not veto um, the ban against trans health care. So I want Minnesota to pass this to give hope to these young North Dakota people who I've come to know who are really hurting right now, even though they may, you know, be able to, we're closer, they're closer to Minnesota, but some of them are in Western North Dakota. You know, they, they, they need to hear that their life, their visibility, their chance to move forward matters. Mm-hmm. And and your son very much paying attention to what's happening uh, in the news and what's happening nationwide. Yes. Oh, yes. I think any trans person is, you know, because they're you're trying to have your identity stamped out. You're trying to say you shouldn't exist. So, thank you, Loretta, for not calling. Not you, in. but the, mm-hmm. the, the you know the situation. All right. Thank you. Let's take another phone call. A listener in Duluth, uh, Andrew, is on the line. Good morning, Andrew. What do you want to share with us? Hi. Yeah, I'm, uh, I have a 16-year-old trans male son who's been on testosterone therapy for almost 120 days. And what is that? Usually positive. What, what is oh, that? 
So testosterone therapy, they inject themselves either every week or every month to start making the change to be, in his case, more male. So at this point, he has a little wispy mustache and things like that. And he is so thrilled with it. Just very excited to see this change that finally feels like him. And and what does it have been like for you, Andrew, as a parent? You know, honestly, I mean, it might be because I'm in the arts that it was easier to accept because I've worked with transgender people uh, for so long. So I think it was easier for my son to come to me when he realized he was not a lesbian. He was actually a transgender male. And seeing the changes in him coming into himself, being confident in ways I've never seen before, um, and all the issues that used to stress him out with friends and whatnot have been going away. It's, it's, it's really so positive for any parent that's wondering about doing hormonal therapy. It can be such an enlightening experience. And so the mental health component of this, you've already seen the value. Huge value. I mean, it's, I mean, and right now, of course, it's like he felt like this was who he was all along. He just didn't, he couldn't voice it. Um, wasn't exactly sure what it was because transgender transgender males are not as featured in society as transgender females a lot of times. So I think that that idea didn't even come into his mind until, you know, fairly recently. All right. That's Andrew in Duluth, uh, a parent. Thank you, Andrew. I appreciate it. Uh, we have a- another um, interview I want to share before we're out of time. Uh, I want to listen um, to 16-year-old Woods O'Neill uh, describing this gender-affirming care bill and, and their opinion on other states banning health care for trans youth. What bills are being passed in other states, it's quite frankly, and it, it's an attempt at eradication. It's been, and it won't just affect trans people. Knowing that Minnesota is a place where people can come to say, screw you to the people that are trying to kill us, it's heartwarming in the worst possible way. Because we shouldn't need to say that at all. Some strong language there, um, eradication of of trans people. Uh, Representative Finke, has that come up in conversation, a description like that? Uh, Yeah, Uh, that is not the the language of the trans community. That is the language of the anti-trans community. It's actually a direct quote from a person named Michael Nose who said that the goal is the eradication of trans people from public life. Um, I think that it's important to recognize that the only way that it makes sense to understand the movement to end transgender health care um, which has now moved into ending transgender health care for adults. Missouri is the first state to make a ban on adult trans health care, um, is to accept that there is a desire to remove trans people from public life. Otherwise, it doesn't. there's no other reason one would try to ban the public existence and health care, but to use, as Woods just said, to, to eradicate us from public spaces. In our last minute here, Dr. Gepard, advice to parents or or to young people who are very closely watching what is happening? Yeah, I think to the young people, what I want to say is, um, you know, you're amazing and you're perfect just the way you are and and you deserve to be celebrated and thrive in all the ways that that all kids do. And please know that there are grownups like myself and like Representative Finke who will never stop fighting until you have that ability to thrive and for parents, I would say, you know, um, listen to your kids, um, be there for them. Unconditional love and support does not mean not asking questions. So it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to work toward understanding, but letting, you know, the young person in your life, your child know that uh, you love them no matter what, and you will do whatever it takes to um, get those questions answered. 
Our time is up for today. We will, of course, continue to follow this. Uh, be sure to go to nprnews.org for any of the latest developments uh, in the state legislature. And we look forward to continuing this conversation. I want to thank our guests, State Representative Ali Finke, DFL lawmaker and the Minnesota House of Representatives representing St. Paul, and Dr. Angela Kate Gepford, Medical Director of the Gender Health Program at Children's Minnesota. Today's conversation was produced by Danelle Cloutier and Samantha Matsumoto. Be safe, everybody. We'll talk again tomorrow morning at 9. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.